When the Buddha left home to search for the answer to his question, why do we suffer? He sought out the, the, the main teachers of his day to help him find an answer to this question. He sought out the teachers who had the most skill. and studied with them. The teachers that had the most renown at that time were masters of concentration. They taught the very deep states of absorption. And as he uh, studied with them and mastered their teachings, actually two successive teachers, he mastered their teachings. And as he mastered their teachings, he realized, this doesn't answer my question. Their teaching doesn't answer my question. He reflected. This dharma, this is of his first teacher, this dharma, this teaching, does not lead to disenchantment, to dispassion, to cessation, to peace, to direct knowledge, to nibbana, but only to the reappearance in the base of nothingness, which is essentially the kind of concentration that he was practicing with this teacher. And so he understood that his question was different than what was, I guess, currently being sought after. Somehow his question was a little different. And so he began to explore other possibilities, other paths. And as Eugene mentioned um, the other night, he explored the extreme ascetic practices, kind of almost in a way as a, counterpo- a counterpoint to the, to the blissful states of concentration. He went the other direction and really mortified the body. And he is said to have discovered, this isn't the way either. That beautiful quote that, that uh, Eugene read, you know, might there be some other way to enlightenment? And on reflection, as Eugene mentioned, he, he recalled sitting under uh, the rose apple tree watching his father perform a a spring ritual in the fields. And he spontaneously entered into the first jhana, a, a state of concentration. And it's said that he reflected at that point, might this be the way? And then he got the response, yes, this is the way. And that's always been a curiosity to me because he had... He had explored concentration so deeply in his early exploration, in his first, his first, with his first teachers. He had explored concentration so deeply and determined that wasn't the way. And yet, after all of his ascetic practices, he came back and touched into this recollection of entering into the first jhana and thought, this is the way. And what I've been curious about, there's not a particular answer that I can see in the text about this question. But my sense is that he understood that concentration can be used in the service of freedom. That concentration is on the path to freedom, but is not itself freedom. The the times he talked to his other teachers, he said, is this all you teach? Is this the height of your dharma, these absorption states? And they said, yes, this is it. Come and teach with me. You've mastered it as well as I have. But for him, that wasn't the, that wasn't the answer. And so my understanding is that he really began to see the, that there is a place for concentration, but that it's on the path. It's not the goal.
he said, cultivate concentration to his monks, to his monks and nuns, to his disciples. Cultivate concentration. One who cultivates concentration sees things as they actually are. So again, this points to the purpose for concentration. He didn't say, cultivate concentration, it feels really good. Cultivate concentration. One who cultivates concentration sees things as they actually are. And so I'd like to talk about this tonight. What does it mean to use concentration in the service of liberation? And to explore this, I'd like to start by reviewing these two forms of concentration. I think Sally introduced in the talk on the seven factors when she talked about the concentration enlightenment factor. She talked about these like two ends of the spectrum on concentration. The one-pointed concentration, cultivated using a single point of focus, the body and mind becoming very peaceful, quiet, essentially cultivating a stillness both of mind and of object. This is what we've been doing. This is, this is the orientation of the practice we've been exploring for these six or seven days. And then the, another kind of concentration is what is called moment-to-moment concentration. This is a concentration that is cultivated with a stability of awareness even as that awareness knows changing experience. And so there's not necessarily a stilling of experience, but there is a stilling of awareness. The awareness Essentially, the stilling of awareness means that whatever it meets, it knows it fully and is non-reactive. It meets it, it knows it, and then it knows the next thing and the next thing and the next thing. It might be a sight, a sound, a body sensation, a mood, an emotion, a feeling, a perception. Just moment after moment, rapidly changing experience. And typically with rapidly changing experience, we get hooked by some other or other piece of that rapidly changing experience. Some sight we see, oh, that's interesting, what about that? And we start thinking about it. Or, look at that, I don't like that, how can I get rid of that? And we start trying to control or fix or change. And so typically our usual mind meeting changing experience is not terribly balanced. It's not very still. It meets something and it shoots off. Philip talked about papancha the other day, this mind that is just proliferating around what we experience. And so moment-to-moment concentration is a kind of concentration where the awareness meets what's happening and doesn't react to it, doesn't chase it, doesn't uh, try to get rid of it, It knows it fully, it meets it, understands it fully, and the next moment it's understanding the next thing and the next thing and the next thing. So stability of mind, able to stay present for this river of what it is to be a human being. The factors of concentration that we've talked about. Vitaka, vichara, piti, sukha, ekagata, aiming, sustaining, rapture, happiness, and one-pointedness are all present as the mind collects, the awareness gets stable in this moment-to-moment concentration. 
perhaps we can understand what Vitaka and Vichara aiming and sustaining, we, rather than aiming and sustaining at one thing, we are meeting, ob- meeting experience, meeting changing experience. Moment after moment, the aiming and sustaining is more about cultivating the continuity of awareness itself, of the mindfulness itself. We keep checking in, am I aware? Am I aware? What am I aware of? With this gentle momentum of vitaka and vichara uh, in moment-to-moment concentration, the stability of mindfulness arises because of the continuity of the mindfulness. That's vitaka and vichara in the moment-to-moment concentration. As, as the mind settles and is able to be present, the hindrances fall away, just as in Access concentration. There's a form of access concentration in moment-to-moment concentration where the hindrances are at bay. Rapture arises, interest arises, happiness arises. And one-pointedness is basically understood as the mind meeting, fully meeting each new experience in a non-reactive way. Ekagata, what we could call I mean, we, we often, the translation is one-pointedness, but it's not a one-pointedness that meets the same object over and over again. It's a, it's a one-pointedness that fully meets whatever it is, whatever the experience of this moment is, and fully meets the next moment of experience. So all of the factors of jhana are present as the moment-to-moment mindfulness gets strong. As Sally mentioned, all forms of meditation use both mindfulness and concentration. It's just a matter of like, these are kind of two ends of the spectrum in a way. You know, we could talk about absorption practice, steady concentration practice as being one end of the spectrum and open awareness being the other end of the practice spectrum. And there's practices all through the range. So this is really just kind of highlighting the two ends of the spectrum, but practices fall all over the place. One of the most familiar practices that we have taught here at Spirit Rock and in this lineage is from Mahasi Sayadaw, where we direct the attention to, for instance, the breath. And when I practiced with Sayadaw Upandita, I was taught to stay with the breath until I could stay with the breath for a full hour. And then I could open to all experience, but I was staying with the breath not in the way of, of kind of stilling the breath. I was paying attention to the breath in terms of seeing all the little details. So it was an, a meditation on one object, but the changing nature of that one object. To me, this kind of lies in the middle of this spectrum. It really cultivated a concentration through focusing the mind on one object that I could really get interested in the changing nature of it. So this moment-to-moment concentration, the the one-pointed concentration um, is extremely valuable, as you have all seen. I, I don't know that there's anybody that I've talked to that has said, you know, wow, this is useless. (laughs) Pretty much everybody sees just how useful this is. The the far end of the spectrum of the one-pointed concentration, the absorption end, where we really enter into a stilled object, absorb into it, the understanding with that deep, deep absorption is that while you're absorbed in that kind of concentration, there's not much room for insight to arise. There's room for insight to arise as you go into that state and as you come out of it. But in the state itself, you're just absorbed in that state. And so not much room for insight. It's just a steady state. No change. For insight to be possible, 
the concentration needs to be attuning to change. This is really the key difference between concentration practice and mindfulness practice, or one of the key differences between concentration practices and mindfulness practices. And again, it depends on how, you know, what the emphasis is, whether the emphasis is on stilling or on noticing change. And so with this kind of concentration we've been practicing, to turn it towards being in the service of liberation, we need to start to turn towards changing experience. Allow the attention to begin to pick up on change as opposed to the settling on the, um, the more stilling side. We've been emphasizing not looking at the detail of the breath, but more maybe the rhythm or just a, a kind of a flow, but not a lot of detail. And so I'll talk in a little while about how to turn towards change or how we can take this practice and kind of just slightly shift direction. But first I'd like to explore a little bit about what it is that we're opening to as we turn towards change. What is insight anyway? Insight into what? The insight that is... uh, of interest, let's say, here in what the Buddha taught, comes back to the question that he asked at the very beginning of his search. Why do we suffer? And so the insight that the Buddha oriented towards, or the question, the exploration that he oriented towards is, How can I understand suffering? Is it possible to be free from suffering? So his exploration looked at that. And what he discovered, or one of the ways to frame what he uh, said, was that, you know, one of the core reasons that we suffer is basically because we want things to be different than they are. And... We want things to be different than they are because we're not seeing things as they actually are. Remember the Buddha said, cultivate concentration. One who cultivates concentration sees things as they actually are. So we want things to be different as, than they are. We don't like unpleasant experience. We want to get rid of it. We want pleasant experience to stay. We don't like it that pleasant experience changes. The uh, freedom that the Buddha found is most clearly described, he said, the extinction of greed, the extinction of hate, the extinction of delusion, This is Nibbana. I like this definition. You know, it's really simple. It's not like describing some, like, you know, really mind-blowing altered state. It's like, it's something that I can envision living with in life. I can maybe have a, a, a kind of idea of what it might be like to live in this world without greed, without aversion, without delusion. He goes on. Enraptured with lust, enraged with anger, blinded by delusion, overwhelmed with mind ensnared, one aims at one's own ruin, at the ruin of others, at the ruin of both, and experiences mental pain and grief. But if lust, anger, and delusion are given up, one aims at neither one's own ruin, nor at the ruin of others, nor at the ruin of both, and one experiences no mental pain and grief. This is Nibbana, freedom, 
immediate, visible in this life, inviting, attractive, and comprehensible to the wise. Again, an emphasis on visible in this life, the possibility of waking up freedom here and now, as Philip has been saying, here, now, this possibility, here, now. Not some afterlife of freedom, not some transcendent possibility, but it almost feels like a sense of transcending through or with rather than above. So freedom, the absence of greed, the absence of aversion, the absence of delusion, the understanding is that what causes suffering is greed, aversion, and delusion. So the absence of those is what freedom is. And so our exploration is looking into what is it What creates, what what holds the patterns of greed, aversion, and delusion in place? Unfortunately, we have some teachings of the Buddha to help us understand this. He pointed to a quality of ignorance, of not understanding that is this root. And and I said a moment ago, we want things to be different than they are because we are not seeing things the way they are. This is ignorance, not seeing things the way they are. Our usual definition of ignorance is something along the lines of not knowing something or lack of knowledge. But the ignorance that underlies greed, aversion, and delusion is much more insidious than simply not knowing something. It's actually an active misperception of reality. And the Buddha pointed to three primary misperceptions of reality that we could call human ignorance. We tend to take what is impermanent to be permanent. We tend to take what is unreliable to be a place where we might find reliable happiness. And we tend to take what is not self to be self. These misunderstandings infuse the way that we meet the world, inclining us to through the misunderstanding, the misperception, essentially, of um, permanence, we, we, we misunderstand, we think, oh, there's something that will make me happy. There's something out there I can hold on to that will make me happy. Really, the, the, uh, um, the unsatisfactoriness of experience is a direct result of the fact that everything... Everything, everything, everything that we experience without exception is impermanent. There is nothing in our experience that is stable even for a split second. And yet we misperceive this over and over again. We misperceive this. We think we're finding something stable. We hang our hat on things. This misperception of permanence Um, there's a couple of things that incline us as human beings to make this mistake. You know, you're not alone in making this mistake. (laughs) One of the things that inclines us to make this mistake is that the change that's happening is happening so rapidly. And our perceptual system is actually designed to kind of not... uh, um, to kind of put those pieces together so that it seems like there's a coherence to what's happening. 
This can be, this can be um, demonstrated, or we can perhaps do a thought experiment. Many of you have maybe seen, um, when, you were, when you were younger, maybe, um, you know those 4th of July f- sparklers? Well, when I was a kid, we used to like spin around in a circle with that sparkler and like enjoy seeing that there was a circle there. You know, it's like we, we, we could create the illusion of a circle by waving the uh, fire stick really quickly. And this is the way our perception works. It's like when something's moving and changing quickly, our, our perceptual system will tend to create something as if it's there. Now with the fire stick, we know there's not really a circle in the air, but our perceptual system is fooling us into thinking it might be there. This kind of thing happens a lot in so many ways. We don't generally touch into the rapidly changing nature of experience. But through meditation, through concentration, the concentrated mind has the kind of precision to be able to start to see the rapidly changing nature of experience. So this is one of the ways that concentration serves us, to help us to see this rapidly changing nature of experience. And why is that useful? Why is it useful to understand the rapidly changing nature of experience? Because without that, without that understanding that things are actually changing, we are inclined to want to cling to things. As soon as we deeply understand that whatever is happening is impermanent, deeply understand that, when we deeply understand that, the mind is not inclined to pick it up and say, oh yeah, that's going to that's gonna do it for me. Because it understands at a very deep level that it's impermanent. It's, it's changing, even as, even as we think we want to pick it up. And so the concentration can begin to reveal just how rapidly things are changing. It also begins to reveal another a familiar or um, human way that change tends to be masked. And that is because we tend to relate to experience through ideas rather than through direct experience. When we look at our body or explore our body, think about our body, and you may, you may have noticed this some in the settling into concentration, feeling our bodies in a different way. Feeling the vibratory nature of the body, the earth element, the fire element, the um, wind element. The wind and fire elements in particular are very dynamic. And yet as we think about our body, you know, we think about it in terms of hand or foot or, or knee. We think about pain in the knee. It becomes a block of like solidity. When we relate to our experience through concept, it tends to create something more solid that we're relating to experience through. And so that those concepts, when we... For instance, think about the, a pain in the knee. If we just think about it as, boy, my knee really hurts, it, it can just feel like this solid mass. And yet when we actually start with concentration to begin to explore the actual experience of the body underneath both the idea of knee and pain, we see a very dynamic experience that is not at all solid. This was one of my early... Um, real understandings of just how helpful it was to see um, change. And as I saw the dynamic changing nature of uncomfortable experience, the mind stopped, well, it stopped relating to it as a thing and began just understanding it as being something changing. And I could see that as soon as the mind kind of congealed around it as a thing, boy, the pain just shot up through the roof. But when the mind was just noticing 
the rapidly changing nature of it. It's like there was nothing for, no, no particular sensation for the mind to react to because as soon as the mind felt that one, it was gone. And then another one appeared and it was gone and another one and it was gone. So there was, wasn't anything to be averse to. It was changing so quickly. So the concentrated mind begins to see this rapidity of change. Because things are changing so quickly, the mind also begins to understand that there's nothing that can possibly be a lasting source of happiness. So this sense of taking something as being satisfactory or this will do it for me, this is what's going to make me happy, it's completely undermined. And actually, something that is through, again, through looking at our experience, looking at what we're holding on to, where do we think we're going to find happiness? Looking at that, you know, oh, you know. And it's, it comes in small ways, and it's kind of amazing just how powerful, just how powerful that delusion of greed is. You know, greed saying, yeah, if you get that thing, you're going to be happy. You know, it's like, we know that a piece of chocolate is not going to do it for us forever. But that's not the way our mind works in that moment. It's like, no, it, belie- it believes, it has, it has jumped on that greed bandwagon and it, yes, yes, I believe that chocolate is going to make me happy. It's stunning. It's really amazing to see that just how, just how much our mind buys into this delusion. It's really interesting to look at it in small ways. You know, small cravings, small places where we find um, greed. You know, maybe a second, uh, we haven't had many desserts here, but a second chocolate biscotti or, you know, avoiding, uh, not doing that, just watching, watching the wanting, just watching the wanting and see what happens. Another side of this exploration is to really investigate. This is actually one the Buddha recommended around what we think is going to make us happy, what we think is going to really satisfy us. He said, look at just how far that satisfaction actually extends. Pay attention to that. So yeah, you think that chocolate's going to make you happy? That second cookie, it's going to make you happy? Well, have your second cookie, but pay attention how long does it actually make you happy? Are you even there for the happiness of the cookie? I was talking to this with one person recently, and I had encouraged her. I said, you know, don't try to not go for the chocolate, but be there for the chocolate. It took her a while to to get there. And then, you know, to begin to see, oh, actually... Actually, you know, that chocolate, it's very, it's very nice while it's there. It's actually delightful to be present for the, uh, the sense pleasure of that. And when we're really available, the sense pleasures, you know, it's, it's, a, it's interesting. It's, it's like sense pleasure can be very heightened when we are really here. But it's heightened partly because we are not clinging to it anymore. And so we can really be there for that sense pleasure. And then actually notice, I did this. I was at the forest refuge and I, I would have a piece of dove dark chocolate with a cup of coffee after lunch. And I paid attention to just how long the pleasure lasted. It lasted for way longer than I would have thought, actually. <laughs> I mean, I'm told there's something about chocolate that, you know, generally makes you feel good, you know, endorphins or something. Um, It did, you know, it lasted for a couple minutes after I finished the chocolate. But it was a couple of minutes of happiness. You know, the mind, the mind had bought into that it would last longer than that. So... When we start to look at this satisfaction, look where, where we think we're going to find what we want, 
it's interesting not only to look at like how long does the pleasure extend, but what is it that we're actually wanting? What is it that we actually want? Sometimes we want a particular sense pleasure, you know, like really want that chocolate. But when I really look at it, more often what I discover is I, what I want is some idea. This was really uh, clear to me at one point. Um, I was sitting the three-month course and I heard descriptions of certain kinds of meditation experience. Um, seeing things rapidly arise and pass away, sometimes called arising and passing, and her descriptions of this meditation experience. And boy, I suffered a lot wanting that experience. And I, I could feel the wanting. I knew the wanting. I knew I was wanting it. And um, at one point, I really, I just, I, you know, I was feeling into the wanting. I was just watching and observing that wanting. And at some point, when I was observing the wanting, what I noticed was that what was happening in my mind while the wanting was going was that I was envisioning telling my teacher that I'd had the experience. That's what I wanted. I wanted my teacher to recognize me for having had some experience. I had no idea what arising and passing was. I didn't know what I wanted. I just knew that I wanted to tell somebody that I'd had it. This is the, this kind of thing, you know, this, that we, what we want actually is a construct of our own minds. That's kind of amazing. You know, when we start looking at this process of where do we think we're going to find satisfaction, not only is, you know, the, the wanting of, you know, the suffering of the wanting, the mind that's doing that, but what we want is created by our own minds. It's not any more substantial than a thought. Look at it in your own minds to see this. And not self. We take what is not self to be self. This is, um, you know, we can do whole talks on this topic. It's huge. So I'll just say a few things briefly about this. Essentially, this is, again, a misunderstanding. We are interpreting... We're interpreting some experience or some aspect of our experience as being me or mine or I. There's a lot of varieties of ways that we claim I or me or mine. Sometimes it's an aspect of feeling like I'm in control. I'm the one that decides things. I'm the one that chooses things. Or sometimes it's a feeling more of ownership of this is mine. This belongs to me. Or sometimes it might just be a sense of I'm the one who experiences things. I'm the one that feels things. Or it might be an identification with emotions. I'm the one who's miserable all the time. We identify with a whole range of things that are just processes that are unfolding. This pointing to not-self is really a pointing to that everything that's happening to us is kind of a tumbling of causes and conditions. There's something happening here. A process is unfolding. A very cohesive process is unfolding. It's like a tree grows. There's a very cohesive process about that tree growing. An oak an acorn falls to the ground. It gets enough nourishment, water, light. The conditions are such that it's one of those oak trees down there where it's got a cage around it and a deer doesn't come along and eat it. It's got conditions that allow it to grow. 
There's no entity directing the process of growing a tree. It's nature. It's just causes and conditions. And very similarly, the unfolding of our human life is nature. It's a process of causes and conditions. I think that part of the reason why we attribute self is because of this very interesting process that's a part of human nature that is self-aware, that is self-reflectively able to know what is happening in this process. This process is aware of itself. This is just a a part of, I don't know if it's a fluke, it's just a part of being a human being that this process is aware of the process itself. But that, that very reflective kind of process aware of itself, that's where the belief in self enters in. And so there's no entity in here in the control tower, you know, guiding, deciding. It is a tumbling forward of process. We can start to explore this too. You know, just looking at what it is we take to be me. What is it that we take to be me? You know, this, this, the, the teaching on not-self is, is sometimes used as a spiritual bypass. You know, we, we might say to somebody, or, you know, somebody might say to us, oh, get over it, you know, you're just identifying with it. You know, that's not what this teaching is about. There's a very famous saying by Zen master Dogen, to study the way is to study the self. To study the self is to forget the self. To forget the self is to be enlightened by all things. This path begins by studying what we think of as self, not by bypassing it and like, Pretending we don't believe that we have this sense of self. We have to understand how that misconception happens so that it's not like an overlay of, oh, yes, I believe there's no self. That's not even what the Buddha said. So beginning to explore our experience, the... Uh, the changing nature of our experience as we turn and direct concentration towards the changing nature, we begin to see into these core misperceptions, these human misperceptions. And so... I've talked a little bit in this exploration of these core misperceptions about how we turn towards, basically we turn towards change. We turn towards looking at what we think should make us happy. We look at where we think we're finding satisfaction. We turn towards looking at where these misperceptions are operating. What, look, what is solid in your experience? Turn towards that and see, does solidity really hold up? Is it really solid? Turn towards what we think is going to be satisfying. How long does this satisfaction actually last? Turn towards what we think of as I or me or mine. What do we see when we do that? So we can begin to, with a concentrated mind, begin to investigate these misperceptions and begin to understand for ourselves that they are misperceptions. But more directly, I'd like to talk too about what you've been doing here and how this concentration that we've been cultivating is used, is, has been during this time, and can be, going forward, used in the service of liberation. 
in my own exploration of concentration practice, I found that just in the creation of the state of concentration, there was a lot that I learned. So much. We learn about what we cling to, where we get stuck, what's hard to let go of, what's, wh- where we start clinging to pleasure. So we, we learn about our habits of mind in the very first days of the practice of, of uh, you know, just coming to the breath over and over again. Learning about our tendencies, our, our own personal habitual tendencies of where our mind tends to go. This is an understanding, a learning that we're gaining about our own minds, our, the, the habits of our own minds. Also, something that some of you have talked about is as the concentration deepens, we've talked about this kind of cyclical nature of the concentration. It's not like this ever-descending, deepening, or, you know, steadying of mind. We go through a lot of cycles. And sometimes what happens is what one teacher, Michelle McDonald, calls the purity-purification cycle. The purity cycle is the settling into the stillness, the hindrances being at bay. The mind gets a taste of purity there. It's very beautiful. You've all touched into at least some measure of this purity. For moments, as Philip was talking about, for moments we get tastes of this purity. And sometimes what happens, we get long tastes of this purity and we think, oh, I figured it out. <laughs> I had one time I was sitting in the dining hall and I had a, a kind of a, a, a opening to um, concentration just while I was sitting in the dining hall and it's like all my pain went away. I was in this just great state of bliss and I thought, wow, I figured it out. I'm never going to feel pain again. <laughs> I really believed that. <laughs> so, you know, we go through cycles. The, the, the concentration collects, gathers, unifies. There's that, under that sense of purity. And then the concentration falls apart. And sometimes what happens, and some of you have talked about this, that um, something It's like the purity, the purity has created the conditions for something that's been deep and held and not able to be touched into or met. That purity gives space for that to come up and arise, come into the surface. This too is a part of the learning. It's not a mistake. It's part of the process. The process of learning how our minds cling. Learning what, where the holdings are, the old patterns of holding. Purity, purification. We go through these cycles. On this retreat, you may have gone through one or two of these. On, on a long retreat, a six-week retreat, you go through it over and over again. It's not that, you're, it's, it's not that, that you somehow lose everything. Some, the first few times I went through it, I felt like I had to start all over again. And because I thought I had to start all over again, I did have to start all over again. It's the idea that we have to start all over again that makes us have to start all over again. But... If you're staying with the process, with the purification as it happens, actually as that begins to soften or loosen or let go, the, the presence with that can support you to just move right back in to a purity cycle. We've talked about malleability of mind. The mind is way more malleable than we think. And concentration, we can move in and out of states of concentration way more quickly than we might expect. And so if you have the idea, oh, it's going to take me forever to get concentrated again, just know that's just a belief. 
check and see if it's that thought itself. I remember just like, I would sit there one, one day. I, I had a uh, time where I had to, it was in the middle of a three-month course. I was right in the middle of a three-month course. Somebody had fallen down in the meditation hall on Halloween. They had pumpkins lighting the hall, so it was really dark in there, and somebody had fallen over and hurt themselves. And I was the only other person in the hall, and so I went into the staff office to uh, let them know that somebody in the meditation hall needed help, and they were having a Halloween party in the meditation, in the, in the staff office. I walked into the Halloween party, and it kind of blew me away. <laughs> After six weeks of silence, it was like, It did take me a couple days to settle down, but <laughs> the reason it took me a couple days to settle down was because it sort of, sort of went like this. Oh, breath. Oh, that party. I, it's going to take me forever to settle down. Right. Oh, <laughs> breath. Breath. Oh, why did I have to go into that office? It's going to take me forever to settle down. Over and over again, that thought. That was what was taking me forever to settle down. The insertion of that thought. I now know that a concentrated mind can have a very dynamic interchange, very engaged, fully normal, and then within minutes be back to concentration. So this, we learn about this malleability of mind also. We learn about cause and effect as we explore creating the state of concentration. We begin to understand the conditions, what gets in the way of concentration, what supports concentration. We've talked about this. We've talked about the, the, the jhanic factors that support concentration. We've talked about the seven enlightenment factors and the fact that we cultivate certain ones of these and the rest of these are results. We talk a wichara. That's what we engage with. Piti, sukha, akagata are the result. We learn how to cultivate the conditions. So we begin to understand the cause and effect nature of the processes of the mind. This is actually a pointer to not-self. Understanding that our system our organism, is this process of cause and effect. And there is agency in this system, this process that knows itself. This process can make decisions. This process can choose to cultivate mindfulness. This process hears about mindfulness and can choose to cultivate mindfulness, seeing the results of that. And then we attribute I did that. The sense of self is an afterthought, basically. So in terms of shifting, and tomorrow morning in the guided meditation, we're going to offer, we'll, we'll offer a guided meditation about this shift. Um, and then it's your choice whether you continue over the next two days to continue deepening in the concentration or maybe from time to time exploring the power of concentration to see into things as they are. There's a really unique opportunity you have here to see just how powerful the mind can be when it's concentrated. And so... We'll explore this a little bit in the morning, but just as a little bit of a description. When we're in one-pointed concentration, you know, we, we can shift to change in some different ways. One of the ways we can shift to change, and one of the most straightforward ways, the, maybe the most, most comfortable given what you've all been doing, or most of you have been really kind of right with the breath. The first thing would be to shift to how you are paying attention to the breath. 
being more interested in the changing nature of the breath. Looking at what is the sensation that lets you know the in-breath is beginning? How do they change? What are the changes of sensation as it goes on? What about the ending of the breath? How do you know it ends? Just noticing the changing nature of the breath itself. This is just a kind of a, a subtle shift of the way you're paying attention. It doesn't have to be dramatic. But that begins to orient the mind towards this exploration of change. Beginning to see the breath as a process. The breath, the breath is a great object of meditation because it, it, um, it breathes itself, basically. And so we don't have to try to breathe. And in that process of witnessing that, we again, we see just the not-self nature of breathing. There's this process going on, this process of breathing, taking care of this life. It's really kind of a beautiful thing. This process that breathes, wants to breathe, to keep itself alive. It's like metta in action. So that's one way we can turn towards the changing nature of the breath. Another way would be to let go of the breath. For moments you could play with let go of the uh, focus on the breath and just open to, you might open just to the whole body or open to the body and hearing and just see what's changing this flow of being a human being, the dynamic experience of changing sounds, body sensations, even just right now. Let your attention be broadly connected to your body. What are you experiencing? Pulsing, tingling, hardness, coolness, softness, opening to the changing nature of your experience. We open to the changing nature of experience and also to the fact that attention picks up on different experiences. So attention connects. And then that attention connected with that object goes away and another attention comes. So we start to see that process as well. So insight deepens over time. It starts from hearing kind of a description of, you know, the Buddha's pointing. If, if the Buddha didn't point these things out, the likelihood that we would see them is so small. And so hearing this, we may start to be curious and investigate. And we start to get little tastes. Little tastes of insight, like we get little tastes of peace and ease. We get little hints, little pointers to seeing clearly. I used to think there was going to be some big mind-blowing insight after which I would be happy forever. (laughs) And what I really have seen so much is that the practice and the insights are really gradual. The unfolding of practice, the Buddha actually described as an analogy, practice unfolding very gradually. He said, it's like a rope from a shipwreck, the rigging of a rope that, you know, lands on the beach. Day by day, the sun, the sand, the wind wear away at that rope. If you were to go to that beach and look at that rope day to day, you're not going to see much changing. But six months, a year later, you go back, you try to pick up that rope. 
and it'll have fallen apart. And so the, the small recognitions, and sometimes we don't even see them. Sometimes we don't even see the changing understanding that's developing. So a lot of this involves trust. I think trust on the side of the, the small pointings that Philip was talking about, the small pointings to peace, to ease, as being kind of the, the indication that we're on the right path. And likewise with insight, just small pointings, small recognitions. Oh, I see how wanting a piece of chocolate actually isn't satisfying. Small things. It really is a gradual path. And so trust in that gradual unfolding. Thank you for your attention. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.